Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Restoring Grace Radio on blogtalkradio.com. My name is David Fournier, Senior Instructor here at Restoring Grace. Thank you for joining us either live or on archives. Restoring Grace Radio is here to provide online lessons about the Christian faith, our history, our documents, and how to express our faith to a very needy world. Thank you for listening, and now, on to our broadcast. Thanks for joining me, whether live or archive. My name is David Fournier, Senior Instructor here at Restoring Grace. And we're on uh, Lesson 2 of our Early Christianities modules. Again, as I said in the intro lesson uh, last week, I'm not sure how many of these there'll be. It could be 20, between 20 lessons and 30. It's hard to say. Um, as we're kind of moving through this introductory material, I want to get all this out first. Classes will probably be about 20 to 25 minutes long uh, in in uh, term, because we're just trying to get some nutshell information out to the people. Remember, if you hear something and you're interested and you want to learn more, um, you can find me on Facebook at Restoring Grace. Uh, type in Restoring Grace and just look for our site there. I um, also have an email address that's on that page. It's D-F-O-U-R-2-6. That's D-F-O-U-R-2-6 at gmail.com. And last of all, you also see our phone number on there, 719 8311. Uh, every once in a while, I do get some solicitation calls. If you're selling elephant rides or alpaca farm land, I'm not particularly interested. But other than that, let's get into it. So last week, we covered a little bit of the introduction, just the idea that when Christianity was birthed, and we're talking now as it's moving from first, second to its third century uh, fixture, there were a lot of different versions. There are a lot of different groups out there. We talked briefly about you know, we introduced the Gnostics, the Marcionites, the Ebionites, the Essenes, or, and there are several others that we'll be learning about here as we move on. But today we want to focus on the idea of, well, how do we see this information? Um, well, there's a, a pretty simple experiment that we've conducted before in classes where we get, uh, and you can buy them for like a dollar at the dollar store, but you buy reading glasses, which typically are just two pieces of magnifying glass that they've assigned a certain value to. And you could take about the most physically fit uh, student in the room and put him across from me about six feet away, and I'll toss him a tennis ball, and he'll catch it. And then I'll say, well, here, try these glasses on. And they'll be the lower magnification. I don't exactly know how these things work, but it'll be a lower magnification, and it'll be like, oh, okay. And he, and he can see that one. And then we go from like 5 to 2.2, and finally we get to the point where there is just no seeing this incoming ball. There's no way that you're able to see it. And I get to bounce it off his forehead, which is fun for me. But it brings up the illustration that the lenses in which you see history will have the greatest impact on what you see in history. And so today we'll talk about three historical viewpoints, different ways to look at information and basically how to interpret it. Now, historical research is more than just the, the cute, well, you've got to keep an open mind. You do need to keep an open mind. I agree with keeping an open mind. But if you have an open mind and limited vision, 
Uh, it may make sense if it gets there, but if you've already made up your mind moving forward, we'll talk a lot about following evidence where it leads, um, how many of the biblical doctrines of the church were built around the concept. They already had the conclusion. Now they're just hunting for the verses that they can use to support it, regardless if there's 10 verses that you could point towards it and say, well, that's absolutely the truth. And there's 50 that say that's a bunch of nonsense. They still pick those 10. So today, we're going to be focusing on three historical viewpoints, three ways to interpret the information that we're going to be hearing in the rest of this class. And also, we'll talk about one of my favorite subjects, the storyteller's art. Now, when we read the New Testament writings, in particular the gospel accounts, there are two statements I believe are profoundly important to our research. Now, sadly, most believers in Jesus only have a surface, uh, excuse me, only have a surface view of these magnificent documents. As we will see, they're full of codes, hidden meanings, statements that seem to transcend time, and most significantly for us, they contain perhaps the most historically relevant material about Jesus and his life. Now, first, we must understand when we received the Gospels, we did not receive journalism. The Gospels were not reports, as some would contend that they were facts from heaven. They were not written by disinterested parties. They were just covering the daily news. What makes the stories from the Gospel and other sources we have so amazing is that they all talk about Jesus and his accomplishments, his life, and his words. And that's not bad for a relatively unknown man from his day from some backwater town called Nazareth. There's even a conversation in the Gospels about Nazareth. Are you sure? Now, the writings were, were written not to just tell us about Jesus, but to tell us of Jesus. They give accounts in seeming contradictory ways. But when they were written and widely dispersed, not much attention was given to reconciling their stories. Now, as we progress through the different episodes, we'll see some of the reasons why they were not concerned with reconciling the account. Now, if we've made a mistake in our Christian teaching, if we have ownership in the current condition of the faith, it will take a dive into past history to see it developing. There was a time when the Christian traditions were preaching what Jesus preached. But today, as in many years ago as well, we're preaching about Jesus. The fundamental, this fundamental and intentional change in direction perhaps has caused us and Jesus the greatest harm, both theologically and historically. Second, how we view these writings, or more to the point, how we've been told to view them, will hold great power over how we see them. One of the major differences between history and religious studies is that in religious studies, perception can be everything. If you think Jesus was tall, he was tall. If you think he raised from the dead on the third day, well, he must have. Faith does not hold the burden of evidence like other disciplines. For the historian, perspectives are dangerous and are often hiding something behind the scenes. Now, before we get into the three historical perspectives, I want to show you an example of how the historical viewpoint can add depth to our knowledge of faith. I'll use my favorite example that I employ to show the Gospels were not concerned with the order of events, but play themselves out to tell a story to the interested in the seeking that occurs in the backdrop. I often refer to this as the storyteller's art. Now, I'm going to use the Gospel of Matthew for my source, and we'll turn to some history for some help later. Now, the storyteller's art is a very important part of understanding the Gospels. Many of the stories, for example, 
where something happened. When Jesus is raising somebody from the dead, where is this? What town is he in? Is there any folklore, similar stories? Uh, all the different activities that occur. The storytellers are telling them in a certain way to tell us something beyond that. The genealogy of Jesus is a fascinating study in that. We'll talk about that in a few more episodes to come. The Davidic generation posted in that same right around that genealogy. So it's an interesting set of numbers into the genealogy to make us think about things. There's a lot of them, but here's one that I want you to think about relating to the gospel of Matthew. In Exodus chapter 12, we read that Israel's, Israel departs from Egypt. Then in Exodus chapter 14, the next major event, the parting of the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds. In Exodus chapter 19, Israel's camped out in the wilderness. And then finally, in Exodus chapter 24, Moses is on the mountain giving the words of Torah, Israel's most sacred teachings. So in quick summation, Israel goes out of Egypt, through the water, through the wilderness, and then receives the commands of God from the mountain. This is known as a very important history with Israel. and has many celebrations and festivals in their remembrance. Now I want you to fast forward to me to the beginning chapters of Matthew and how Jesus is introduced. In Matthew chapter 2, Jesus returns from Egypt. He comes out of Egypt. In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is baptized down into the water. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, out in the wilderness. And finally, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is on the mount teaching his most known and beloved words, the Sermon on the Mount. So Israel moves from Egypt to the waters, from the waters to the wilderness, from the wilderness to the mountain. Jesus moves from Egypt to the waters, from the waters to the wilderness, from the wilderness to the mountain. The composer of the Gospel of Matthew is using the history of Israel to tell us the significance of Jesus as the Messiah of Israel. Now, whether or not these events happen in this order in Jesus' life has no bearing on the, story, on the storyteller's viewpoint. What matters to the author? Activity between Israel and Jesus, placing Jesus dead on in the scope of the future plans of messianic redemption. Point being, if it mattered enough to be written in this fashion, we should be taking it seriously. Now, if this is the first time you've heard this observation, don't be too ashamed. Most of Christianity as a whole has not been overly concerned with presenting their version of Jesus in a positive Jewish light. It is virtually inescapable not to see Jesus in the Jewish landscape that he was born into. Much of the best possible filter, again, both historically and theologically, that we can use is, is not so much whether Jesus would have said or not said them sayings attributed to him, but it's remembering the Jewish lens. For example, how is it that Jesus talks about the church years before it was ever formed? Let's take a, let's take a look at a good study tool by turning our attention now to the three historical viewpoints and see if they'll be able to shed some light. Now remember, these are the filtering devices that we want to use when we're judging historical events, documents, and situations. When considering historical viewpoints, I offer three models for your consideration. I would not suppose that these are the only three, but I think that we can draw a valuable lesson as we prepare to historically review some ancient sacred texts and practices. Now to get our viewpoints working for us, Let's start with an illustration to better see our ideas flesh out. All right, now I want you to think now. I'm not going to tell you to close your eyes because some of you could be driving. But I want you to picture 
that you're looking at your reflection on the surface of the water, maybe looking down into a well. And the only thing you can see is your reflection clearly and undisturbed. All right, got that? Looking down the water well, perfectly calm surface, and I can see my face. Now, when you look into the reflection of your face in the water and see only yourself, this is a historical perspective known as narcissism. Narcissism sees only its history as real. Any other presented history or counterarguments come from the non-educated or ridiculous people, also known as heretics, which, by the way, simply just means the other. The major flaw in this view is how it negates the possibility of any valid contribution outside of its own working framework. This is a popular, how unfortunate, however unfortunate, model work within religious circles. The statement, all truth is God's truth, consistently is presented by every side of Christian denominations, even though their versions of that truth differ greatly. Now, working in an environment of narcissism does not lend itself to promoting dialogue or encouraging outside involvement. It often leads to a base of knowledge very limited and usually out of touch with current reality. Most scholars, pastors, teachers that operate from this dictum would tell us that there's no reason to solicit outside ideas or thoughts because the truth, primarily their truth, has been handed down for centuries and millions of people have believed it. Now, millions of people know they have cancer, but that doesn't mean that they want it. Using mass mentality as an objective tool for correct thinking is a sure sign of narcissism perspectives. Expanding knowledge is critical to the faith. When we agree that we solved all the mysteries, it occurs to me that we're suggesting that God has been weighed and measured and all we can know is known. And I would think that God would disagree. So narcissism in and of itself is the idea that only it's exclusionary. Only that group can be right at the expense of all other groups. The next historical perspective is called positivism. Positivism looks at the reflection beaming back from the water and announces, none of my social or personal beliefs will affect my view of the past. Now, this is a very positive attitude, which I rate as positively stupid. To see the history of the early Christian community will take a fresh new look, not shackled by previous teaching and practice. Now, I spend the better part of my classes prepping the class to take an honest look at the evidence instead of just simply presenting the evidence and let it speak for itself. I believe it's good to be confident in our faith, but to be confident in our beliefs is another matter. Our faith will be more often be challenged by our situations than our beliefs. Many of you know that to be true. Where this model of historical perspective fails is it does not promote being prepared for potential changes. Leaders that subscribe, that subscribe to this line of thinking often get charred in debates. A narcissistic point, viewpoint does not study the other opponent's viewpoint, and it gets shelled in the debate. A positivist viewpoint usually gets hyperpersonal and rages out against opposing viewpoint. We, we can't possibly all know everything. And more significantly, we can't always know what happened. We have to be able to look at these historical documents as shredded as they may be, as inconsistent as they may be, as few as there may be, and be able to step back and take an approach that allows us actually to work with them. And that's our final historical viewpoint. The final historical viewpoint is called interactivism. This is where we commit to the idea 
that the past and the present must interact with each other. We cannot measure the depth of the water without disturbing the surface, which in turn is going to disturb the reflection of your face. I find that most people do not want their reflection disturbed. I recently read a book by a rather well-known minister that addressed the historical Jesus. He went into great detail about where Jesus lived, the kind of foods he would have eaten, the weather in the region, and a little about some of his illustrations. It was an interesting piece, but I noticed that he did not really disturb the surface. He failed to mention that Jesus was Jewish. By the way, his his lack of historical observance led it to a destroying the actual name of his book, The Seven Last Seven Days of Jesus. Quickly, the reason I bring that up is he maps out the last seven days of Jesus, the last seven days of his life, and he has Jesus traveling on Sabbath. Jesus is an observant Jew. He's a Torah-observant Jew. He is not going to travel on Sabbath. So however he got from that place to that place, there were eight days, not seven, he would not have traveled on the Sabbath. Interactivism demands probing beyond the comfort zone and reaching deep into the thoughts, practices, writings, and even the mindsets of the past. I see interactivism as the only hope for developing historically accurate pictures of these past Christian communities. By diving deep and getting a better summation of our predecessors, we can, we can more responsibly see if we're on course or drifting away from the model that Jesus gave us. So here they are in review. Narcissism tells us that it's the only viewpoint that's correct, and for that matter, the only one needed. It openly condemns any opposing viewpoints, usually by defaming the person or group that promotes the differing idea. For example, Narcissus' viewpoint would hold to the superiority of the King James Bible, declaring it as the only authorized version and the only inspired version. They would also decry all the versions as ungodly or non-canonical. The positivism viewpoint is open to new ideas and theology, but uses their past teachings and experiences to filter out the parts they want to dispose they want and dispose of the ones that don't fit. The results should be obvious, it's a very disfigured view of what they're of the faith and what they're trying to do. When people say they have a hybrid faith, I get the point. But they need to remember that in some cases you can combine objects. A gas motor will work in combination with an electric motor. Hey, Reese's peanut butter cups combine chocolate and peanut butter. However, cats and dogs do not hybrid very well. You could take two cats and tie two cats, tie them tail to tail, and you will have union, but you're going to be pretty far off from unity. Lastly, I support an interactive historical viewpoint. To get to the bottom of an issue, I see the need to start at the bottom. We must resist the desire to shortcut or circumvent the system. Historical viewpoint requires participation, open dialogue, constant evolution of ideas and adjustments in our course direction. You know, for about 47 years, I lived in Southern California. This has to be the most reliable weather state in America. Well, then I moved to Colorado which in my opinion is God's personal weather playground. I quickly learned to pay attention to the weather broadcast, a feature of my life I never had to do before. The narcissistic viewpoint will say, hey, I only need to step outside and feel the weather. How I view it is all that matters. The positive viewpoint tells me to trust my past experiences and seasons. After all, how I see the data is all that matters. The interactive viewpoint looks out the window, reads the current weather report, and researches about the seasonal averages. That way, I think we can make better predictions of how it's all going to work out. 
Now, as we progress further, let's keep these three viewpoints in mind, as we'll be challenging our conventional thinking and keep an open mind in terms of our historical pursuits. So those are our three historical viewpoints that we're going to be working with moving forward. Hopefully, we can stay on the interactive page. Next class, we'll be talking about recovering our losses, the principles of reconstructionist history. Now, reconstructionist history is when, often in a large conflict, the winners get to write a lot of the history because the losers aren't around anymore. So there's some changes that occurred, and there was a reconstruction that occurred. There were groups of people who thought the Apostle Paul should be the leader of the church. There were people who thought that the Apostle Peter should be the leader of the church. There are people that believe that James was already running synagogue or church operations out of Jerusalem before either one of these two guys got into the running. So there are stories and books and legends attributed to these guys, these apostles, to try and give them more superiority over the other. Lots of these stories have been reconstructed out of similar stories with other types of pagan gods and myths and moving forward. We'll talk a little bit about those on our next session. Once again, I'd like to thank you for joining me, whether live or archived, or hanging out with me. My name is David Fournier, Senior Instructor here at Restoring Grace. Remember, we're always available for you, either online or our archive on blogtalkradio.com. Just type in Restoring Grace in the search engine. You'll find my show, and also we house the shows for uh, Rabbi Joseph Hilbrandt out in, in Southern California. God bless, and thank you so much for joining